This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The thing that Donald Trump was trying to do with respect to Ukraine was bad. And so when you're forever stymied by process because the thing you want to do is bad or corrupt or an abuse of power, you have no choice but to use someone outside the system who can be bent to your will like Rudy Giuliani. And that may end up bringing him down, but the reason it's bringing the president down is because the thing that he wants to do is bad. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. This was a somewhat quieter week for impeachment. We did not have public hearings this week. It's Thanksgiving week. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. The members of Congress are home. Uh, A lot of them are trying to hear what their constituents think of all this, trying to plot their next move. The important things right now are happening behind closed doors. Congressman Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee, uh, part of the majority on the House Intelligence Committee, are writing the report that they will give to judiciary. So what is coming up now is the handoff. Basically, so far, we've seen a public investigation conducted by intelligence. Things are going to now move to judiciary, which is going to actually set and write the articles of impeachment. There's a line I've heard people using that intelligence handled the information, judiciary handles the law. So that will probably be true. So I want to look at two things today. One, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Matt Iglesias, to talk about where we are in impeachment and what is coming next and some of the strategic and procedural decisions that will shape it. And I'm going to be joined by Preet Bharara to talk about Rudy Giuliani, who has entered into a strange political twilight as the key figure, arguably, in this entire impeachment scandal. But joining me first is Matt Iglesias. Matt Iglesias, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So where are we? We had the three days of hearings in the Intelligence Committee. What? Wh- where are we? What happens now? It seems as if the Intelligence Committee is not going to hold any further public hearings. They haven't absolutely ruled that out, but they've given no indication that they want to. And so the Intelligence Committee, uh, its chairman, Adam Schiff, along with the other relevant chairman of jurisdiction, but but primarily Schiff, they are going to write some kind of a, a memo, I guess, about what they have found. They're going to pass it to the House Judiciary Committee, and then the Judiciary Committee is going to consider uh, drafting articles of impeachment. And it looks like Democrats want to do this fast, that they don't want to drag out the the drama. They want some kind of vote uh, probably, you know, late this year or early next year. Yeah, there's a quote from Representative Val Demings um, from Florida, who's a Democrat, and she's on judiciary. She sits on the Intelligence Committee and she said to Politico, wouldn't that be a great Christmas gift for it to all wrap up by Christmas? I think it's very possible. Why do Democrats want this to wrap so soon? Given there's a lot of people they haven't heard of, a lot of things arguably, at least if you believe this should be a wider inquiry they haven't investigated, there really does seem to be an emphasis on speed that doesn't totally seem obvious from the outside. I find the tactical and strategic thinking here to be pretty questionable, but uh, it's clear that the sort of most vulnerable frontline Democrats, the people who were not enthusiastic about impeachment, you know, three months ago. They are very worried about the perception that 
obsession with impeachment is preventing them from getting things done in Washington. And they seem to want, now that they have been kind of committed to doing this, they want to do it quickly so that they can turn the page and say they are doing other things. I don't really know how this works because it's not like there's going to be like some huge bipartisan kumbaya moment coming next next August and and their idea that they're going to pass this uh, U.S. Mexico Canada trade bill and that's going to help them with Trump voters seems a little fuzzy to me but at any rate it's the frontline members who've been driving leadership's thinking on impeachment for months now and they seem to want to get this done sooner rather than later and then conversely you know Adam Schiff the other Democrats who've been investigating this they say that look they have not all the evidence one might want in the world but all the evidence you need to draw conclusions about Trump's behavior that that seems to me to be a a big question here that On the one hand, I don't feel like anything we learned in the impeachment hearings dramatically changed the story as we knew it from the original whistleblower account and then the the White House call record. On the other hand, there's certainly a part of me that would like to hear from Rudy Giuliani, from Mike Pompeo, from some of the other key players up the chain of command under oath that would be interesting and would at least flesh out the details a bit. My understanding from the Democrats is that the problem is these people won't testify. They're claiming executive privilege or attorney-client privilege in Giuliani's case, and they don't seem to want to take the time it would require to litigate that out. But it means we're going in with a lot of key players not heard from. This is a political process, right? If what was happening here was that Democrats were saying, well, look, we think, um, you know, two thirds of the Senate Republican caucus is super open minded and they really just want to look at a compelling set of evidence. We feel like we've got that evidence, so we don't need to rush ahead. They're like, well, okay, you know, fair enough. Um, But but nobody thinks that that's what's going to happen. And so in practice, we're talking about shifting from a process that Democrats control, right, where they decide which witnesses get called and they decide, you know, do they want to make a big stink, hold a press conference saying it's outrageous that Rudy Giuliani won't testify? Uh, or do they want to hand this over to the Senate where Republican majority is going to decide what happens and where it sort of spirals out of their hands in a way that seems to me to be at least riskier than than they are really considering? We've begun to see some hints of what that might look like. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham made a statement this week that he was going to be asking the State Department for any and all communications related to the Bidens and Ukraine, which at least raises a possibility that the way Senate Republicans are going to respond to what Donald Trump did in Ukraine is by running an impeachment trial that does the thing Donald Trump was trying to do through Ukraine, which is uh, casts a lot of aspersions on the Bidens and tries to accuse them of corruption in a in, in a way that damages Biden as a potential opponent to Trump. Right. And I mean, you saw this right in the Intelligence Committee. House Republicans had a list of complaints that uh, Schiff had not called as a witness. Hunter Biden, uh, the whistleblower, uh, this woman, uh, Andrea Chalupa, who worked at the DNC at one point. Um, and they, you know, wanted to stage some kind of counter trial in which they were going to expose both the alleged corruption of Hunter Biden and also uh, some kind of nefarious Ukrainian conspiracy to bring down Donald Trump. Uh, In the Senate, you know, Republicans will have the opportunity to, to do that, to in effect put Hunter Biden on trial and to make the argument that this was a warranted set of inquiries that Trump was pushing for. Um, I think that's not 
Like, for a long time, it seemed like the ideological safe space for Republican senators would have been to say, oh, this call wasn't great, but it's not impeachable. Uh, But clearly, that's not what Trump wants. That's not what Trump's, uh, you know, sort of biggest fans on Capitol Hill want. And there's a real risk that the Senate trial, in effect, turns into a trial of Hunter Biden. There's the question of length in the House, whether or not Democrats keep going with the public part of the investigation. There's also the question of scope. As this moves to the Judiciary Committee, and they will hold hearings, although I don't think the hearings will be investigatory in the way we're thinking, in the way they've been uh, under the Intelligence Committee. There is a question of when they write articles of impeachment, do they add in things like corruption, um, what Trump has done with the hotels or other forms of self-dealing? Do they add in other things around honesty or breaking of constitutional boundaries? That issue of do they build a broad set of articles of impeachment that could then lead to more avenues of inquiry, certainly in the Senate trial, and lead to more things being aired? Or do they try to stay very narrow on the Ukraine question because they feel that's very defensible ground? Seems to me like the the key one. And I've really not seen clear signaling on what uh, Jerry Nadler and others are going to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a disagreement among Democrats going back to before this Ukraine story broke as to whether there should be impeachment charges related to obstruction of justice uh, in in Robert Mueller's findings. Uh, there are a lot of other th- sort of things out in the air about the emoluments clause, about um, a-, a bunch of other stuff. And I know one reason that Nancy Pelosi has been hesitant to broaden the inquiry at all is this concern that it's a kind of like once you pop, you can't stop sort of phenomenon where there's like so much stuff that someone or other could plausibly say is impeachable that, you know, you you don't have like a limiting principle. Whereas if you hold the line at Ukraine, then even though that's going to feel sort of arbitrary, it, it's also like contained and defined and, and it's over. I mean, here again, I think, you know, w- one can question the sort of logic of this, right? I mean, the Ukraine issue it's something that this handful of moderate Democrats, you know, was comfortable with for a little while. It looked like Republicans maybe had some real concerns with Trump's conduct here. On the other hand, it it's so remote from like the normal life of a typical American person. It's a little strange to me to, to stay limited to this. On the other hand, it is true that it's like once you broaden out, like where do you stop? I think something important to mention here as a part of the process is that every impeachment article the judiciary comes up with will be voted on separately. And so when Nancy Pelosi and others in the Democratic leadership are thinking about what to allow in and what not to allow in, and as you say, they, they're very concerned they begin to open it up, it'll be very hard to say, for instance, that Trump's racism should not be an article of impeachment, because if you say it isn't, well, then are you saying it's OK? But once you open it up, every single one of those votes gets taken individually. And so you don't want to lose Democrats on articles of impeachment votes um, before you go to the Senate. In some ways that I think that their thinking is you want to have as much unanimity as you can. So at the very least, people can say the Democratic caucus is divided on this. The more different kinds of votes you make people take, the more likely it is that they begin to moderates begin peeling off on at least some of them. Right. I mean, exactly. You know, you might want to like throw one extra one in there to sort of give everyone a free vote to say, oh, no, I'm moderate. Like, I I shot this one down. But if you get a really long list, you could have an embarrassing situation, which it's like judiciary wrote up 37 charges and 33 of them couldn't pass the House. And now we're having a trial on on this random subset. So that's a tricky one. Um, The flip side, I would say, is that, you know, the hearings themselves 
have, I think, clearly not been great for Donald Trump, right? You have had a parade of people, career U.S. government people, sometimes Trump appointees, saying things that mostly reflect poorly on Trump and his team, right? And to the extent that you can go broader and actually put this kind of issue that, you know, people have been talking about for years but hasn't really dominated the news agenda, if you can put that on television, you know, with networks cutting into their regular programming, big cable news roundups in primetime, with discussions about hotels, uh, discussions about sexual assault, discussions about, um, you know, sort of pilfering military construction money to build the wall. That strikes me as something that, you know, might be a a good look for Democrats who've oftentimes been complaining that they can't quite get media attention for some of their criticisms of Trump. Uh, Whatever you say about this Ukraine thing, they got a lot of attention for it. That seems right to me. One of the things that has seemed to me to be a strange subset of this is that Republicans seem to be convincing themselves the polls here are good for them, even though they are objectively reasonably bad. And Democrats seem very concerned the polls will turn on them, even though the polling right now is is good. And I can't tell if the two sides are just um, they're, they're sort of playing a public relations game here or if they're seeing something I am not. But this dynamic where Republicans just seem more confident that impeachment can backfire if it goes a little bit too far and Democrats seem terrified of impeachment backfiring has created a funny asymmetry of confidence in how aggressively to prosecute the case between the two parties. Right. And I mean, I do think that part of that is, you know, as I'm sure listeners of this show know, the electoral map is skewed in favor of Trump relative to broad public opinion. And that frequently puts Democrats in tough positions, right? When something is narrow popular among the mass public. That makes the Democratic base feel really indignant about it. Like, you guys should press forward with this, right? Uh, But House Democrats are still looking at the same gerrymandered map that there used to be a lot of hand-wringing about before the 2018 midterms. Uh, They did well in those midterms, but it's still that same map, right? A lot of the critical members are repping districts that are three, four, five points more Republican than the nation as a whole. Uh, The key Electoral College tipping point states are two or three points more Republican than the country as a whole. And and the Senate is, you know, even more sort of biased pro-GOP. So... Democrats have this asymmetrical sense of caution about impeachment, about all kinds of things. And I think it's not necessarily unwarranted, but it can also be very frustrating to liberals who who look at this, who see what they want, who see these broad national poll numbers look bad for Trump. So it's a I mean, it's a tough position to have the playing field tilted against you. Matt Iglesias, thank you very much. Thank you. In a very strange way, at the center of all this is, of course, Donald Trump. But next to him, and arguably pushing him forward, has been Rudy Giuliani, of all people, the former mayor of New York. How Giuliani got to the center of this, how he ended up comfortable running ad hoc foreign policy, how he became Donald Trump's international bag man, and how he became the person who arguably pushed the country into this impeachment saga. So I think central for understanding both why we're here and having that context, I think, helps contextualize a lot of the news that is coming out and is going to likely continue to come out. So I'm joined next by Preet Bharara. He is the former United States attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. That is a position that Rudy Giuliani held at some point before him. Um, he's known Giuliani for a long time. He's, of course, the host of the great podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. And this was just a great conversation. So joining me next, Preet Bharara.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. <laughs> that's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. How long have you known Rudy Giuliani? Uh, well, I've known of him since, I think, um, the beginning of time. <laughs> because he's a prominent <laughs> figure in New York. And I came to law school in New York in 1990, and he was a pretty prominent person then. Um, I came to know him a little bit personally when I became nominated to be the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, the same job that he had for six and a half years that I did for seven and a half years. One of the things that I did, which I thought was, you know, a sign of both um, respect for people who've had the job before and also my own sort of on-the-job training, is I got together with everyone I could who had led that office. And one of the people who had led it for the longest period of time was, was Giuliani. And I often say, because I get a lot of questions about Rudy these days, I like to preface what I say because my view has changed, but I like to preface my remarks with a clear declaration of how friendly he was, how generous he was to me, advice he gave me. We had a long dinner. We spoke on a couple of other occasions, I think, when I was just starting. Uh, not about anything that we're talking about today, not about politics, not about ideology, but about the importance of the work that that office did, um, how you run the office. Uh, how you get morale to be high in the office, which I think was high when he was uh, running that place. And he was he was nothing but uh, gentlemanly and and terrific to get advice from. That was the job that launched him first to the mayorship and then obviously to, to this role in American politics. What was his reputation in that role? When you sat down with him for dinner, what were your impressions of him as U.S. attorney? You know, depending, depending on who you talk to, people have different views. Like everyone does that job a little bit differently. Uh, I did a little bit differently from uh, from how Rudy did it, or Jim Comey did it, or Mary Jo White did it, and we all did it differently from each other. I mean, I, I tried, when I did the job, to take the best of what I thought uh, were the qualities of the other people and the and the the plans and the strategies of the other people who had done it. Um, you know, I did a little bit more public speaking than some people, like Mary Jo White. I did a lot less public speaking than somebody like like Rudy Giuliani. So I think, you know, I I gave more interviews than some people, but I always tried to stay, you know, within the lines and not talk about issues that were, you know, far afield from the priorities of the office. Rudy would sometimes make very clear his political ambitions beyond the office of U.S. attorney. I mean, he became, you know, I was young when I became the U.S. attorney. I was 40. I think if memory serves, Rudy was like 37 or 38, even younger. So look, there were some people, and that's this is true of everyone who's done that kind of job. There are people who think you're too uh, aggressive. There are people who think you talk too much. Um, I think he did a lot of good things when he was at the head of that office. 
Uh, he made a lot of enemies. I believe it is true that there were death threats made against him. He did a lot of work on Wall Street. He did a lot of work with respect to organized crime. And organized crime, you know, the traditional La Cosa Nostra was a big deal uh, back in the early 90s when, when Rudy was in charge of that stuff. And he made a lot of inroads. He made a lot of big cases. One of the reasons I ask about that is that at least part of his public persona was as somebody who had fought against different kinds of corruption, both on Wall Street and in um, organized crime. And so the transition from there to here, where he's at the center of a case that is deeply, uh, that has a lot of corruption involved in it and has people running strange businesses with mafia in the name, is it's, it's a pretty unusual one. So in between, he's the mayor of New York and he's mayor of New York during 9-11. And I think a lot of the impression that people outside New York, of which I'm one, had of him is of this somewhat liberal Republican mayor of a blue city. Was he the guy then that we see today, or was he different then and has changed? You know, I don't know that I'm I'm expert to speak about, you know, what he's like and what uh, is in his mind. I will tell you that as a New Yorker and someone who was in the U.S. Attorney's Office as a, as a young line prosecutor at 9-11, you know, people have their own views about how the city is run. You know, everyone has an opinion on the mayor. A lot of people don't like the current mayor. A lot of people didn't like uh, the prior mayor who's now seeking to become president of the United States, Michael Bloomberg. So there are a lot of strong opinions in New York. But the one thing about which there was consensus, and this is how he forged a certain kind of reputation that launched him on a presidential campaign that didn't go very far, because maybe for structural reasons, he's not as conservative, at least he wasn't then when he ran, as maybe the, the rest of the Republican electorate wanted him to be, or that he is now. But in the days following 9-11, Unlike today, where he often says the wrong thing when he goes on television news networks to talk about Donald Trump and about Ukraine, back then he always said the right thing. You know, the, the, we had a, a city that was in pain and in grief, and everyone was crying all the time. And you didn't know, on top of that, what people forget is now we know that there was no immediate follow on attack. But I remember going to sleep in my apartment. With my, uh, with my wife and my, my young daughter, four months old, 10, 12 blocks south of the Empire State Building, and you would get rumors that another building was going to be hit by a bomb or a plane or something, even though planes had been grounded. You kept hearing these rumors. And so two things. Every time Rudy spoke about uh, the lost, he spoke in a gracious and you know sympathetic and empathetic way that maybe we hadn't heard him do before when he was sort of the, the jousting mayor of an unruly city. And then second, he was saying the right things about public safety and about, you know, how first responders were doing their jobs and how the FBI and the JTTF and even, you know, the American military was engaging in operations to make sure that we were safe. And so he, he was a very reassuring presence um, in, in the immediate aftermath of, of 9-11. I mean, so much so that he thought he could make a gambit to evade the, the term limitation rules and maybe extend his time as mayor to, to a third term. It didn't work. But in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, I think, yes, that's how you viewed him. That's how a lot of people viewed him. Um, that faded over time, of course. An argument that I've seen people make of his tenure there, uh, and this primarily relates to his reputation before 9-11, but, but seems to me potentially an important through line to where we are now and through line to his relationship with Donald Trump a lot of his work and a lot of his most controversial work had to do with the conflicts between the police in New York and the public. And he was known for defending the police against accusations of brutality or wrongdoing to a pretty extreme degree. And an argument that my colleague Matt Iglesias has made is that Giuliani has always been more about 
law and order politics than the rule of law itself, that he's in general been quite protective of those in power and of those who practice a almost quasi-authoritarian-ish law and order politics. Do you think that's a fair estimation? Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I haven't gone through all his cases and I was a pretty young person when he was the U.S. attorney, um, obviously an older adult when he was the mayor. He practiced a certain breed of tough guy law enforcement and tough guy leadership. So, you know, zero tolerance, broken windows, a lot of other things. You know, so there's a healthy amount of ego there. They were famously, and I don't know how much of them are true, and I've worked with, you know, very, you know, the, the, there, there was a, uh, you know, double duty of both Police Commissioner Bill Bratton and Ray Kelly. They both came back and did the job a second time. And their stories, I don't know if they're true or not, but they wouldn't surprise me that, you know, Rudy Giuliani sometimes felt some competition with other people who were significant figures in law enforcement, like the police commissioner always is in a city like New York. But yeah, he valued in a very serious way, maybe more than others, an image of being a tough guy. After his tenure as New York mayor and after he did not win the Republican nomination for president, he's been doing what? In between Trump and now, <laughs> he's been doing what? I think he, he went back to private practice. Um, he, was, he practiced at a couple of different firms representing international clients. Um, at some point, uh, I've come across him because he was representing, you know, somewhat famously among other counsel, uh, this Turkish national, Reza Zarab, who was charged by my office, uh, as former gold trader, charged my, with my, by my office for significant sanctions evasion in routing resources to Iran. And Rudy Giuliani and the former Attorney General of the United States, Michael B. Mukasey, came in for Reza Zarab. And some of that has been in the news because Rudy and Mukasey went and traveled to meet with Erdogan. So he's got a lot of dealings in foreign countries in various, you know, somewhat odd ways. It's not the typical thing that a criminal defense lawyer does, represent someone, and in the course of trying to vindicate uh, their rights or get them freedom or prevent, prevent them from being convicted, to actually engage in the kinds of conduct that look more like you're a special envoy from, from the United States and meeting with foreign leaders. And there are echoes of that in what we're now learning about his exploits in Ukraine and other places. I think he, he has fancied himself not just a high-powered lawyer in private practice, but one who has international contacts and runs around the globe trying to get good results for people, not necessarily purely through legal process, interestingly, but through you know his brand of diplomacy and negotiation. Yeah, this seems to me to be key connective tissue of what happened here. So Rudy Giuliani, as I understand his career, became a national figure after 9-11. And because he had national ambitions, tried to transmute what he had done in running and comforting and leading the city after 9-11 into a foreign policy argument for himself. His speech at the 2004 Republican National Convention was very foreign policy related. And then he seems to have gone into a consulting private practice dimension where he acted almost as in his own way, a form of shadow U.S. foreign policy or an effort to show that he could run U.S. foreign policy. When Donald Trump is elected, he tries to become secretary of state, um, doesn't right. get that for a number of reasons. But one of them is that he has a lot of shady, unusual foreign dealings. And then in Wait, and that and that hurt him in the <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't think that was a deal breaker these days. Well, it turns out it doesn't have to be right because he becomes he becomes the president's personal lawyer and begins running a foreign policy from that perspective. So can you just say what what is the president's personal lawyer, at least in theory? What job was Rudy Giuliani doing for Donald Trump? Uh, you know, I, I frankly, I don't have any idea. 
Um, there are times where that's an honest answer. There are times where Rudy seems to be somebody who is just a television lawyer and he goes on the airwaves and he defends the president against, you know, some reporting that may have leaked out with respect to the Mueller investigation or now Ukraine. There are other times when he claims to be acting in the president's legal interests by having meetings in Ukraine. There are other times when it seems to be that he's a, you know, another campaign consultant and trying to figure out ways to do messaging and improve the image of the president. Uh, the president himself, uh, on at least one occasion, was asked, "Is Rudy Giuliani your lawyer?" He said, "I don't know." You know, I, I solid think management technique right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very when, comforting. You know, it's the client who who decides if someone's their lawyer or not. And remember, there's a substantive reason why, no matter what role someone is fulfilling on behalf of a principal, president or otherwise, why you want to cloak that in an attorney-client relationship. Often, it's the case that that's going to be protective of the principal because of attorney-client privilege and all sorts of other things. You know, people still view that relationship in some ways as sacrosanct and protected, and it doesn't have to be transparent. And everyone knows if you watch television, even if you're not a lawyer, that what happens between a lawyer and a client is secret and is allowed to be secret, and there's nothing you can do about it. Even a prosecutor uh, who's trying to investigate a murder, you can't get the information from the lawyer that the client may have told him. So there's a lot of, you know, good tactical reasons why you want to, you know, make it seem like that's the relationship. And a lot of people abuse that power. I mean, the mafia used to do it, I'm not comparing these two things, but the mafia used to do it all the time. You bring in the the outside counsel uh, and uh, on the principle that you can make an argument that every conversation you have, if the lawyer's sitting in the room, you're talking about shaking people down, you're talking about racketeering, you're talking about um, mafia hits. As long as the lawyer's around, you can make the argument later, well, it was a attorney-client privileged conversation. So it's it's an it's a knee jerk, I think, but also tactical strategy to shield the relationship from outside inquiry and gives you free reign to do a lot of things. But the fact that you have a law degree and you're conferring with a principal about something does not mean it's an attorney-client relationship. Something that is so striking to me about how this is all played out is when Rudy Giuliani joined as President Trump's lawyer, potentially, the idea was that President Trump needed people who would protect him that he was under assault from all directions, from the deep state, from the media, that he was under investigation, and that he needed people who were loyal, who understood the political system, the legal system, and could protect him. And what appears to have happened is Rudy Gianni has endangered him. That it, it is not 100% obvious how much of this began with Giuliani and how much of it was done at the orders of Donald Trump or how much of it was co-created and co-dreamed up between the two of them. But nevertheless, it seems very strange to have your personal lawyer be the person who gets you into potentially the most consequential legal or at least political trouble of your presidency. You know, the interesting thing about that, and I, I would have tended to agree with you, and I think I still do agree with you, but I wonder if Donald Trump shares that view. Mm -hmm. You know, Giuliani has on occasion gone on television and said things that I agree with you as a traditional uh, lawyer and someone who knows something about crisis management would think this is terrible for the president of the United States. And the longer that he's allowed to keep doing it and he doesn't get muzzled, he goes quiet for periods of time then he comes back on. There are recent reports that he's starting his own podcast. Um, Cause I think maybe he's well, envious who, of- who, who doesn't of want to podcast and Ezra Klein. <laughs> it's kind of, I think it's in the constitution. Yeah. Former government, former government officials must have podcasts. Uh, that I don't know that the president thinks that that's so. And I haven't thought about this as deeply as I might. But it seems like in the in the current 
universe where you have a president under assault from various quarters, Mueller investigation, uh, his private lawyer being investigated by my former office, the SDNY, you have the impeachment inquiry now, that what the president thinks is most valuable, because public sentiment is important, is a bellicose, belligerent uh, TV airwaves defender, and not someone who's so necessarily a buttoned down, uh, you know, legal brief writer. And, you know, he has some of those people also, you don't see them on TV, or he has had them in the past. And I don't know that Donald Trump would agree with the assessment that Giuliani does him a lot of harm. I think the people around Trump think that. But I'll say, look, you know, Donald Trump became the president. Those people didn't. And to the extent you can make the argument that to the extent Giuliani goes on TV and talks in weird phrases and in hyper detail about things that don't make a lot of sense and don't follow logically and sort of stream of consciousness, to the extent he confuses people about the issues, that's a helpful defense to the president of the United States because at the end of the day, you have to sway public sentiment if there's going to be a conviction in the Senate. Um, you have to sway public sentiment if the House was going to act on the Mueller report, which it didn't do. And so I think you know our traditional way of thinking about crisis management and defenses, I think has been turned upside down. I'll give you another example. You know, I think you and I, if we were to, to speak about crisis management, how to handle scandal in the past, would say, well, if you've, if you'd said three scandalous things on Monday, probably you don't want to say any more. You want to, you want to take it easy and be less controversial. The president will instead say seven more scandalous, controversial things on Monday evening and maybe six more on Tuesday. And you've forgotten the first three scandalous things that happened on Monday. So, you know, the standard playbook of how to defend yourself against things, including accusations of lying, this president thinks is more lying and more scandal and more obfuscation. So I, I guess as a traditional person on these, on these, in this field, I agree with you, but I think there's a counter argument as well. I think all that is correct. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the Trump administration and Trump himself is always run by the idea that it doesn't matter what the conversation is so long as you are controlling it. And the way to control it is to constantly add something outrageous into the mix. So all of the yeah. attention turns to you and the people he likes the most are the people like Kellyanne Conway and Stephen Miller who will do that on his behalf. But what strikes me about Giuliani is in reading the testimonies that have emerged in watching the public hearings in the House, in reading the reporting that has emerged, he was doing something beyond that role of media surrogate, which is he was running at some level a shadow foreign policy around Ukraine that seems to have been the thing that got that everybody else in the White House or the foreign policy establishment was tasked or forced to respond to. And it's the tension between the process Giuliani was running and the process that the traditional foreign policy establishment was trying to run that seems to be where most of the impeachment, um, the potentially impeachable acts seems to have emerged. So from your watching of the testimony and your watching of the story as it's unfolded, how do you think about that dimension of Giuliani's job, what he seems to have been doing running that unofficial side process in Ukraine? Well, so to me, again, being a traditionalist in these uh, areas, I think it's it's insane. I think it's lunacy. I think it's crazy. You have an entire State Department. You have a Justice Department. You have the full uh, you know, authority and force of trained diplomats and public servants, and you have a National Security Council, and you're going outside all of that with Rudy Giuliani. And so 
you know, I credit the reporting and the testimony of those who have said that John Bolton, the short-term national security advisor, referred to what Giuliani was doing as sort of cooking up some drug deal. That's his phrase. And I think normal, rational thinking people who are in the traditional mold, whether you're, you know, a, a hyper-conservative hawk, a Republican like John Bolton, or you're, you're, you're a dovish person who may have worked for a different administration, on this regard, there's probably agreement. You go through proper channels. You make sure that everyone is on the same page. You make sure you're con consulting with and checking the boxes uh, with your Secretary of State and others. You know, Donald Trump has never wanted to work within normal channels, I think. But I also take to heart what, you know, various witnesses said, including Ambassador Sondland to the EU. He said, you know, on this issue of whether or not there was some other channel, non-official channel, he said, well, how could my channel not be official when the president was in the loop? I think the vice president was in the loop. The secretary of energy was in the loop. You know, this was the channel. And I think uh, Fiona Hill said words to that effect. You know, what does it say about Rudy? I'm not sure. Um, it says about Rudy that he's prepared to take any kind of outsized role that allows him to be in the mix uh, and to engage in this sort of free-ranging international man of mystery kind of stuff. But it says more about the president of the United States. I mean, the president, you know, in his entire life has always chosen the bellicose, unorthodox, outside the lines kind of person, several of whom are now heading to prison or in prison, like uh, Roger Stone or like Michael Cohen or Paul Manafort or, you know, the famous late Roy Cohn. He's, a, he's attracted to and wants his work to be done by not the button-down, chain-of-command kind of person, but by the sort of, you know, radical, large personality, behind-the-scenes, uh, back-slapping, you know, egotistical figure who thinks highly of himself, and Rudy is in that tradition for him. You mentioned of uh, players around Donald Trump who've gone to prison, and so far in this particular story, two of the players who've gone to prison are two of Giuliani's associates, Love Parnas and Igor Fruman, who right. arrested... They're not, they're not convicted yet. They've been arrested, yes. I'm sorry, yes, arrested. At a, and they're arrested at an airport with one-way tickets out of the U.S. on campaign finance violations. So what do we what what do we know about them? So we know that they are um, shady business people. We know that they have had a lot of influence in politics. We know that they were doing some of their activity, if you read the indictment brought down by the Southern District of New York, for the purpose of, of giving some other person... Uh, a Russian national influence in elections. Um, and I think there's a lot that we don't know about them. We also know, most recently, that the lawyer for one of those two gentlemen is prepared to have his client give information about other people, including the ranking member on the House Intel Committee, uh, Devin Nunes. So there are people, you know, every time you turn on the TV, you see another picture of one of those associates, um, Parnas or Fruman, you know, with someone like Donald Trump or another person in the administration. So they're a kind of person that you see sometimes in the world who has money to throw around, likes to be connected, and likes to, you know, have a, you know, hidden agendas. Now, to be clear, the indictment makes clear that with respect to the campaign finance violation, those two gentlemen took efforts to hide it from whatever candidate they were supporting and from other people. So, you know, to the extent some people, or you may ask, does Giuliani have jeopardy with respect to the campaign finance violation? You know, you never know until the investigation is done. But the indictment took pains to say that the scheme that they had to channel unlawful money to candidates was not known by other people. And that scheme, as I understand it, was trying to push members of Congress or trying to support members of Congress 
who would aid in removing the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 part of it. Uh, and that, you know, so that ties into this whole fortnight of hearings that we've heard. Uh, and, you know, with respect to Marie Yovanovitch, right, the former ambassador to Ukraine, Giuliani clearly had some involvement in that. And the president, I think, reportedly took the advice of Rudy Giuliani. There was a smear campaign against Marie Yovanovitch. Separately, with respect to this campaign finance violation, yeah, that seems to have been one of the one of the motives, one of the purposes. So yeah, in that regard, there's an overlap between what these two associates were thinking about and what they cared about, and separately what Rudy, Rudy Giuliani cared about and learned about. There's been a rash of comments in the press, both from named and even more often unnamed Republican members of Congress saying, well, look, I'm not ready to turn on Donald Trump over this, but I'm definitely getting tired of Rudy Giuliani. And it seems to me there's a an effort to begin building a narrative that Rudy Giuliani was freelancing and that the president got taken along for a ride or is being implicated a little bit on the side. What do you make of the idea that this was all just a Giuliani scheme that other people didn't quite understand, but somehow got caught up in. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it because that's not how the president operates. You know, the thing that makes the president most unhappy, even when you're talking about a cabinet official, you know, a cabinet secretary who has full reign and authority to engage in, you know, whatever area that they're supposed to be engaged in, Secretary of State, Secretary of Energy, you name it. He gets mad when those people seem to look like they're too autonomous, not rogue, but an autonomous freestanding cabinet official makes Donald Trump upset. And so now imagine how upset he would be. And this was true also when you're talking about campaign operatives, he doesn't want to give credit to people like Steve Bannon and others. It's all the president. The president's doing it. The president's responsible. The president's the smartest guy in the room. The president has a brain unlike, you know, anyone's ever seen, a stable genius, et cetera, et cetera. So for the president, he wouldn't have an operative like Rudy Giuliani running around. As, as, as cavalier, as Rudy is, I think both in deed and in word, he keeps coming back to the to the fact that he was doing everything he did at the behest of the president. Now, did he do some things? Did he ferret out some details or meet with some people without doing long briefing of the president? And I guess that's possible. But I think that Rudy Giuliani was not being rogue. The other reason why I think that argument doesn't hold water is you had multiple witnesses talking about how things were vetted, you know, around uh, what Giuliani was doing, and in particular, and again, obviously, Ambassador Sondland has a reason to make sure that he's giving the impression that everyone knew what was going on, because that's a defense of him, because some people were beginning to throw him under the bus along with Rudy, saying, well, you had Sondland and other folks, they were kind of rogue. Sondland, very credibly, and in other areas, he's not fully credible, but in this area, I think he was. He said over and over again in his testimony that everyone was in the loop. I mean, he used that phrase repeatedly, and he kept talking about the things that he did with respect to Ukraine and you know the linkage between this for that as being at the direction of the president of the United States. He does it over and over and over again. So I think this idea that allies of the president have, and it's a typical you know strategy to blame some other person to have a fall guy, but that strategy is not with Rudy because of what Rudy himself would say, what Rudy himself has said, and what other witnesses like Ambassador Sondland have made clear. The other thing about what Rudy himself might say, he was on Fox News uh, over the weekend. And see, I'm telling you, see, he, people think he goes away, but he doesn't. <laughs> no, he's he's always there. And at some point he said, I've seen things written like he, he meaning the president here, is going to throw me under the bus. When they oh, say yeah. that, I say he isn't, but I have insurance. 
What did you make of Rudy Giuliani saying, I have insurance on Donald Trump? You know, I don't, you know, he has then said, Rudy has, himself has said, I was, I was being sarcastic. And it's funny kind of sarcasm. He, 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 well, you know, the reason I'm speechless is it's hard to, it's sometimes hard to explain the intent of people who are hard to understand, right? <laughs> so the, that's one of know, the single like, best lines in this whole era. <laughs> You're a very rational, reasonable person. I know it's a I like huge disadvantage that, in this in this uh, reporting like, period. Well, it's it's actually a problem, right? Because yeah, I agree. Because you think other you think other people act like you do, and everyone is engaged in rational decision making and careful speech, and they're just not. They're just not. The president says stuff. He says later it was a joke when it clearly wasn't a joke. He says, you know, when he's in Helsinki, he says, I, I forgot to say the word not. You know, I, I don't know why the Russians would interfere with the election or, or I forgot what the exact phrasing was. So language gets turned on its head. And I don't know if this is an example of a gaffe that the people say is when you speak the truth. And Rudy was actually saying something that he shouldn't have said because he's got some kind of insurance policy. But he says, I think he said, maybe he was talking about the the, the uh, incriminating information he has on the Bidens. You know, I, I don't know I don't know what to make of that. I often don't know what to make of, of what Rudy says in that regard. I think it's a very good insight, though, that one of the problems here is people try to attach a more rationalistic, straightforward yeah. um, way of reasoning onto some of these guys, and they have. And, and I think the other side of it, and, and you mentioned this a little bit when you brought up Gordon Sondland's actually, I think, very good point, that how can you say his process was unofficial given how many senior appointed officials were in it. One of the things about Donald Trump and something that appears to be true now about Rudy Giuliani and his post-mayoralty is that they don't really run by process. Um, Donald Trump's very famously ran his businesses quite loose. He just does a lot of deal-making. He has people around him kind of picking up the pieces of the things he says and does and starts up. Rudy Giuliani seems to be creating in his own consulting and, and legal practice a strange miasma of relationships and um, obligations and things he tells people he can do for them and they can do for him. And something that seems to me to have just attracted the two to each other is that they're working the same way. They're work they're both on some level or have become deal makers. And they're trying to run foreign policy by deal making. Yeah. I mean someone call them rogue cowboys. Uh, and they believe in the power of their own personality. They believe in the power of their own persuasion. Uh, and they're larger than life. I mean, they are. They're larger than life personalities. Rudy Giuliani when he was, was when he was mayor of New York. Donald Trump has been for many decades. For those of us who have lived in New York, we know that. Um, look, on, on the one hand, uh, I'll say something positive about the president's proclivity towards, you know, fast action on things. Uh, I worked in the government a long time. There is a lot of bureaucracy. I mean, the worst insult they hurl at anyone is, you know, a bureaucrat. Whether you're Lieutenant Colonel Vindman with the Purple Heart, uh, or actually somebody who's pushing paper in the basement of some government office building, and bureaucracy is something that that government needs to streamline and have faster decision making. And processes are important. But I, I've sat in meetings and tried to get decisions on things in the government that take way too long. And so, you know, some acceleration of decision making and streamlining is good. But there's a difference between you know, um, stultifying bureaucracy and total chaos. <laughs> what the president seems to favor is total chaos. And, you know, he likes people who are available at the drop of a hat. He calls people up outside of the chain of command. That's one of the, one of the reasons why I, I may be gone from office. The president of the United States likes to pick up the phone and call either the sitting U.S. attorney 
in the district that has jurisdiction over all his businesses and all of his properties or many of his properties, or call up the president of Ukraine to ask for a favor though, or take a call from a restaurant in the middle of the of a Saturday afternoon from Ambassador Gordon Sondland to find out if the Ukrainians are gonna conduct the investigations that would harm Donald Trump's political nemeses. I mean, that's what he does. He goes around uh, protocol, he goes, he pierces chains of command, and he reaches down to do, what, whether it's the weather service or anyone else. And so I think he likes people who who have a certain profile. And that is, in this regard, people who, you know, short circuit process and and claim that they can get the job done by having a face-to-face meeting with somebody rather than involve, you know, 15 people at a meeting. And also people who are full of bluster and fight uh, and strong language. And Rudy Giuliani fits that bill. But the problem is when you rely on people like that, one of the reasons you have all those processes and people in the meeting is to make sure folks aren't overstepping or doing something against the law. And it's a it's a fascinating thing to me that um, this is the way they ultimately open themselves up to so much risk, right? With a lawyer, with one of the most established Republican figures in the entire game, it'll be a deep irony if it will be Donald Trump's connection to somebody who was a Republican in very good standing that ends up being the most dangerous thing he did to his own presidency. Yeah, but but I get that. But you're talking about normal people mm-hmm. and, and rational people and traditional leaders. Bear in mind that what Donald Trump wanted to do, that, and that, that all works, right? You go through traditional channels. If the thing you're trying to do is good and in the national interest <laughs> and on the up and up, the thing that Donald Trump was trying to do with respect to Ukraine was bad, in my view, and corrupt and undermining of what the United States was about and undermining national security. As all these witnesses testified, it was underhanded and an abuse of power. Now, when that is the thing that you want to accomplish more than anything else, and you're obsessed with it, and you're terrified of a Joe Biden candidacy, and you want to undermine him, and you want to have anybody uh, at arm's length say that Joe Biden and his son are corrupt, well, then you, what do you do? You can't go through proper channels because even your own handpicked people, as we've seen in these hearings, uh, have integrity, and they have lines, and they have limits, and they're not going to do it. And we've seen all these stories over the last two and a half years that you and I have both talked about at length, where even people like the Chief of Staff Kelly uh, and others who claim loyalty to the administration, the priorities of the president, have sought to thwart what the president wants to do. And so when you're forever stymied by process, because the thing you want to do is bad or corrupt or an abuse of power, then you have kind of no choice. So it makes a sort of lo- you know logical sense. You have no choice but to use someone outside the system who can be bent, who can be bent to your will, like Rudy Giuliani. And that may end up bringing him down, but the reason it's bringing the president down is his own fault. It's because the thing that he wants to do is bad. Preet thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. One of the things I keep thinking about, as I think about, among other things, the strange role Rudy Giuliani has played in all of this, the kind of assemblage of misfit toys and odd figures that Donald Trump collected around him, the crazy processes he's run in parallel to each other, the trouble he's gotten the country and himself and his White House and the Republican Party in. Donald Trump fit into a longtime Republican talking point, not just Republican. It's been around in politics forever that what we really need is for the federal government to be run like a business. What we need is a businessman, somebody who has actually run a corporation. And, and the reason that all got said, the reason that was such a powerful talking point in American politics is there's long been this view. Well, the problem with politics is there's no actual accountability. Yeah, you stand for election, but elections are 
there's a lot else going on in them aside from direct look at job performance. The great thing about how corporations are run is there's accountability. People get fired if they do a bad job. You can tell if things are being run efficiently or inefficiently. Donald Trump has obviously run businesses. We can argue about how successful they've been, but at times they've been successful and some of them certainly have been. He's an amazing marketer uh, as a businessman. But he also played a businessman on television for a long time, and he played one in the New York tabloids for a long time. And so he was known to the country as an, uh, as an icon of American business. That's what many of his books are about. That's what his carefully tended public image is. That's why he puts his name on all these hotels and brands. The idea is to associate him with business. And when he ran for office, he said he would run America like a business. And unlike all these politicians who didn't know how to make a deal or manage people, that he would hire the best people, that he would make the best deals because he was a businessman. He had succeeded in the cutthroat world of New York business, frankly, of international business. And he was going to bring that to the country. No board of directors, none, would permit a serious corporation to be run this way. The way Donald Trump has run the government, which I think Rudy Giuliani's role in the administration is example A of, the way Donald Trump has run this, no one would permit it. The way he tweets, the things he says, the things he does, it's absurd. And the fact that within that context, it looks like Donald Trump of all people has almost ironclad job security outside the context of elections is just remarkable. There are different ways of looking at leadership. One way of looking at leadership is that it encodes a relationship between what is owed to the leader by his followers. Another way of looking at leadership is it is a promise of excellence that the leader owes to his followers. And you can really see the difference here, putting even aside the impeachment power. You could imagine a Republican Party where Republicans were saying right now, whether or not Donald Trump should be impeached, this is not a way to run a White House, that he owed us better than this, that he promised to be better than this, and that we think he should step down, or we think he should at least change the way things are run very dramatically so this kind of thing doesn't happen again. But instead, the Republican Party acts as if the point of having Donald Trump as leader is that they owe him their allegiance, that leadership isn't about what you are doing for what for the organization, or in this case, the country and party that you lead. Leadership is about what you deserve as the very dear leader. Conservatives are supposed to believe in markets, in accountability, being fired for doing a poor job. The fact that Donald Trump, who arguably has this job because he was in American living rooms every week for years, firing people for doing a poor job on things of tremendously less consequence than, say, foreign policy towards Ukraine or running the American government or being the public face of America to the rest of the world. The fact that he was out there firing people and that gave him a reputation for efficiency and clear management and decisiveness that helped launch him to the presidency under the argument that he would run things like a businessman, that he would run the government like a business, and that he runs this administration <laughs> with this collection of chaotic figures and chaotic processes and things happening with total lack of accountability, and then ends the country in this just total mess. And that he nevertheless holds the complete loyalty of his own party because, I don't know, because the wages of polarization, because the incentives of politics are such that he must, that they must hold on to him. It's just wild. I mean, I guess on some level, there's some 
not comfort, but at least a sort of comforting irony in recognizing that the person who ran the U.S. government least like a business was the person who was supposed to run it the most like a business, right? The one who showed just how unaccountable things get in government is the corporate leader. But there's also just a sadness to the whole thing that, you know, you can say what you want about whether or not Trump should be impeached, but this is not how you run the federal government. And the fact that we have a federal government where we put the person in the most important position in the world and then there is no consequence from your own party, from the people who in theory elected you for poor performance, it's just not a great way to run anything. Impeachment Explained is hosted by me, your host, Ezra Klein. Produced and edited by Jeff Geld, researched by Roger Karma, engineered by Cynthia Gill. Our theme music is composed by John Natchez, and our executive producer is Liz Nelson. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or send the episode to your friends. We'll be back next Saturday. <laughs>